So let us transition to God's word this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 10. Um, In our time together at Spring Hill Prez, we have been going through the book of Mark. So I felt it appropriate, as uh, Nate asked if I would preach, uh, to preach out of the book of Mark in what we've been doing. So we're going to be looking at Mark 10, verses 17 through 31 this morning. Hear now the reading of God's word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. So to get prepared for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, uh, one of the things that I have been doing over the last several weeks is uh, listening to a recent biography of Martin Luther. And uh, it's been intriguing to, to know and understand the things that went on in Luther's life. Uh, one of the things that Luther believed was that persecution was a vital part of the Christian's life. Uh, While Luther was hidden away in Wartburg Castle after the Diet of Worms, if I don't get these German pronunciations right, they just feel awkward coming off the tongue, so I'll have to apologize. 
But after the Diet of Worms, uh, a group of men called the Zwickau Prophets came to Wittenberg. They were preaching a new spirituality. They were preaching a, a new way to achieve heaven through spiritual enlightenment and through spiritual blessings. And they captivated the hearts and the minds of people there in Wittenberg. Melanchthon, who was the man put in charge by Luther during his absence, didn't know how to deal with these prophets and their teachings. He didn't know what to do. So he did what he thought was best, and he called on Luther to return from the Wartburg to come and to deal with these men. Upon Luther's return, he did what he would always do, is that he preached a series of sermons. He preached against these men and therefore restored order to the fragile Wittenberg. So this was the problem that Luther saw with these prophets. The first was that they were claiming extra-biblical revelation. And in the time around Martin Luther, that was a big no-no. Luther's constant refrain throughout the Reformation was this. It was, show it to me in the scriptures. Show it to me in God's word. They couldn't support their theology from Scripture. They felt like they were above Scripture, like they were receiving this direct revelation from the Holy Spirit. The other issue that Luther saw was this, is that they were promoting a Christian life that was void of suffering and persecution. Instead, it just focused on present blessing. Paul's second letter to Timothy reminds us of this, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from you whom you have believed it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. So according to Luther's interpretation, rightly living by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is confirmed through persecution. This is what Jesus teaches us in our passage from Mark chapter 10 this morning. So as we approach Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the burden of wealth. We're going to see the impossibility of salvation And we're going to see the blessing of surrender. We're going to see that salvation can only be accomplished through God's power. Therefore, wealth is a burden and surrender. Surrender is a blessing. As I mentioned before, we've been marching through the book of Mark in our uh, Sunday evening time together. And Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. It's the quickest of the Gospels, very fast-paced. Mark doesn't spend a whole lot of time on Jesus' teachings, Uh, although we have some of it here this morning, he spends a lot of time on Jesus' actions, on what Jesus does. And so he also divides his gospel into two different sections. We have Mark 1 through 8, that Mark raises a question, who is Jesus? And we go through a series uh, of events trying to understand who this Jesus is. And in Mark 8 through 16, we see uh, this question being raised of what has Jesus come to do? Uh, The climax uh, or the turning point of the book is in Mark chapter 8, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And after that, Jesus immediately follows it up with, yes, I am, and I have come to die and to rise again from the dead. 
So in that very short passage in Mark, we see those two questions being asked, uh, answered of who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Christ. And what has he come to do? Well, he came to die and to rise again from the dead. So in chapter 10 here, we are firmly entrenched in the second half of the book. Uh, we are asking the question of what has he come to do? Jesus, in verse 17 here, is setting out on his journey. He's setting out on his journey to Jerusalem to accomplish what he has come to do. But before he can embark on this journey, a man needs to meet with him. A man runs something that men typically didn't do in that culture, and he kneels before Jesus, obviously showing him a great deal of honor and respect, and he asks Jesus a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Such a good question. Such a good question. I can imagine there's this group or this crowd surrounding Jesus, and as they hear this question, I can imagine them just kind of leaning in because they want to know what Jesus is going to say, how he's going to answer this all-important question. So as Jesus typically did, uh, he answers the question with a question. He says, why do you call me good? Um, why did this man call him good? Was it flattery? Was he recognizing Jesus' divinity at this point? Uh, was he trying to be polite? Uh, we don't know exactly, but whatever the case it was, Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the point, but he does want to speak the truth into it. He says, no one is good except for God alone. Now, if Jesus was uh, a human teacher like myself, maybe he would have said, well, no one is good but God alone, and I am not him. But Jesus, in his brief statement, equates himself rightly with God. He says, no one is good but God alone. And he moves on quickly from that, and so will we. Uh, Jesus continues by telling the man, he says, you know the commandments. You know what they are. And he proceeds with listing several of them. And it's interesting to see which of the commandments that Jesus lists here. He uses, do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. I'm not sure which of the 10 that one is, but Jesus sticks that one in there as well. It says, honor your father and your mother. Um, these are from what we would consider to be the second table of the law. Jesus summarizes these with love your neighbor as yourself. The ones summarized love the Lord your God are not mentioned here. Things like, you shall have no other gods before me, that do not make yourself an idol, uh, honor the Sabbath, uh, honor God's name. So at first reading, this man's response to Jesus seems pretty arrogant, and it seems even a little audacious. He says, Jesus, all these I have kept from my youth. I remember reading this for the first time and thinking, seriously? Can this guy actually say that? Doesn't he know Romans 3.23? And I know that hasn't been written yet. But doesn't he know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Who does this guy think that he is? Uh, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't tell him, look, keeping the law is impossible. You're lying to me right now. What Jesus does is pretty incredible. Mark records that Jesus simply looks at the man and he loves him. Jesus looks at him and he loved him. Now, I wonder what that facial expression on Jesus' face, that look on Jesus' face would have looked like. 
Um, it was significant enough that the bystanders, those around Jesus, could see on his face that Jesus loved the man. And therefore, Mark records it here in the gospel. But after looking at him and loving him, Jesus now drops the hammer. He says the one thing to this man that he is not going to like to hear. Jesus says one thing, one last thing. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasures in heaven, and now come and follow me. Now, if this were a movie, and I'm no movie director, but I can imagine if this were a movie, there would probably be a a close-up on this man's face as you hear Jesus' words talking. And I I imagine just the eager anticipation that he has, like, what is Jesus going to say here? And then as the words of Jesus come across, just the the bone-crushing sorrow, just seeing his face drop. And as he slowly turns, maybe in slow motion, just slowly walks away. Uh, This man is crushed. And why, Mark tells us? Because he's a man of great possessions. Now, when this man man approached Jesus, Jesus was giving him a litmus test here. Jesus knew who this man was. He knew that he was wealthy. And his question on the law was one to test him. One of the ways that it tested him was to see how he gained his wealth. Uh, This man was no Zacchaeus. He had gained his wealth in an honorable way. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus, he had defrauded people. He had taken from them more than he should have. So when he asks um, about the law, and this man says, I have kept these from my youth, he showed that he was an honorable, a virtuous, a moral individual who had kept the law as best as man could. If anyone was in God's favor, it was this man. Great, Jesus says to him, So you say that you have lived a moral life. Now the question is, do you love God? That's the real question. So go sell all you have. You'll have treasures in heaven and come follow me. But the man can't do it. And he goes away sorrowful. So what was the man's problem here? What was the issue in his life? His problem was his view of God, relationship with God. His, His problem was the view of the law. His problem was the kingdom. In the time of Christ, it was believed that material possessions, ones that were gained virtuously, not like Zacchaeus did, uh, material possessions signified God's blessings on a person. In other words, if you lived a moral, upright, law-abiding life, God would bless you. And that often came in the, in the form uh, of material blessings. The rich young ruler believed that his possessions were confirmation that he was doing the right thing before his God. And as often happened, he felt like he was entitled to them. I have done these good things, therefore I deserve what I have. From his initial question, you can actually read into his theology. He asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He believes that in God's economy, moral living leads to material blessings. Material blessings, therefore, is a confirmation of God's favor in our lives. God rewards those who act virtuously, and possessions and a life of ease and comfort signify that. If this is God's economy, then here's what inevitably happens. 
you think to yourself, I'm going to live a godly life so that I will have blessings. And what it happens is it becomes all about you. Your heart is consumed with self and not with God. But Jesus turned that line of thinking completely on his head uh, when he spoke with the rich young ruler here. He told the man to abandon self, to surrender himself over to Jesus, but the man couldn't do it. For this rich young ruler, his possessions were not proof that he was in right relationship with God. In fact, his possessions were actually the greatest hindrance to his relationship with God. Given a choice between God and possessions, he chose the possessions. He chose the wealth. And instead, he walked away from Jesus. Now, at the end of our passage this morning, uh, Jesus is going to explain the real economy of the gospel. And we'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus' interaction with this man leads us to a really important question for ourselves. What do we understand about the abundance of our material possessions that we currently enjoy? Is our wealth a sign of God's abundance of blessings in our lives? Or is our wealth a stumbling block to our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Uh, Do we see our wealth as a blessing or does it actually lead to us being sorrowful and turning away from our Lord? So that's first, the burden of wealth. Let's look at the impossibility of salvation, uh, starting there in verse 23. So after this man turns sorrowfully and leaves, Jesus looks around and says to his disciple, and he drops off kind of a bombshell on his disciples. He says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. So why is this such a bombshell for the disciples? Uh, It seems obvious to us at this point, but why is it such a bombshell for them? Because they have the belief that material possessions were a sign of a virtuous life and of those who are blessed by God. Uh, The disciples were truly amazed, and so Jesus repeats it, and he gives it a broader context here. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for, the camel, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we're not going to spend time debating the interpretations of what a camel through the eye of a needle actually means. But here's what this means. It's really hard. In fact, Jesus goes on to tell us that it's actually impossible. It's impossible. So following these two astonishing statements... The disciples ask the question that begs to be asked. Then, who can be saved? This question is the climax here. The people are waiting for the answer to this vital question. In everyone's mind, this man, this rich young ruler, he was a shoo-in for salvation. If this man turns away from Jesus, who then can be saved? If not him, then who? Jesus ushers in a new reality and the beauty of the gospel here. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Entering into the kingdom of God means entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship with Christ is impossible through our own efforts. For the last 500 years, we've been inundated and we've enjoyed the solas of the Reformation of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, you know, for the glory of God alone. These were not common understandings 
in the time of Christ. So who then can be saved? Jesus makes it very clear that salvation can only be accomplished by God. He says all things are possible with God. The rich young ruler asked what he could do. Jesus said, it's impossible through you. You can't accomplish it. You cannot achieve it. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is where the gospel is honestly just so overwhelmingly beautiful. Because of our sin, we have set before ourselves an impossible task. Let me say that again. Because of our sin, we set before ourselves an impossible task. Our sin has separated us from God. Through sin, we have become guilty. And there's no way for us to assuage that guilt. There's no way for us to climb back into relationship with God. It is an impossible task. We have become children of wrath, destined for destruction, and we should receive a just punishment for our sins. Ephesians tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The question is, how can dead men and women come back to life? With man, this is impossible, but not with God. But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What makes the gospel the good news is that Jesus took this impossible task that we created for ourselves, and he accomplished it for us on our behalf. With God, all things are possible. We strive for a release from our guilt and from our shame, the crushing weight of these things that are weighing us down, but all the good things that we do cannot save us. It cannot free us. Only God can. And he did it for us through Christ, the beauty of the gospel. But let's be clear. It's not that salvation doesn't require any action on our part. The action that it does require is faith, and this faith is displayed in a surrender of all things over to Christ. Luther reminded us in, this, in the Reformation, where does faith come from? Ephesians chapter 2 says, We know that it is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So salvation requires the gracious gift of God of faith, and faith displays itself through the complete surrender of all things to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So those who are willing surrender all to Christ. And we can't do that in our own strength. It's impossible. It's only possible through Christ. You know, the disciples, uh, as we will read later on, the disciples and Peter say that they surrendered all and followed Jesus But they did that first and foremost because they were called by Christ. He said, come and follow me. And they were able to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us in John 6, verses 44, and later on in verse 65, it says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And how does he draw us? By the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So as we look now at Peter and the disciples, this is the reality that separates the rich young ruler from Peter and the disciples. Mark really contrasts them in our passage today. 
Salvation is impossible with man, and all things are possible with God. So the rich young ruler couldn't grasp that. The disciples are beginning to grasp that. So as we conclude our passage, let's look at this stark contrast between the disciples and this rich young ruler. So as we see here in verse 28, Peter speaks up. As you know, Peter is never one who is afraid to speak on behalf of the disciples. So here he says, see, we have left everything and we have followed you. Peter, uh, Jesus takes what Peter says and he goes even a little further and he says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But the many who are first will be last and the last first. You see how stark the contrast between the rich young ruler and the disciples is? The rich young ruler believed that blessings were his because he achieved them through moral, virtuous, law-abiding behavior, but not the disciples. They realized that for them it was all about surrender. Surrender. So what is the role that Jesus describes here of these blessings amidst persecutions? Jesus says that when we surrender these things, that we will receive blessings. And he says, in this life, but he says, with persecutions. A godly life comes with persecution. Peter and the disciples surrendered all that they had, and they gained so much more, but it came with persecutions. Some of the first martyrs of the Reformation were a group of Augustinian monks from Antwerp in the Netherlands. And when I was listening to the story of these monks in the Netherlands, I kind of swelled up with pride. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, the last name Fenema, it's a Dutch name. Uh, I'm 100% Dutch. A couple of generations ago, my, uh, my ancestors came over. And so when I read that uh, the first martyrs of the Reformation were from the Netherlands, I kind of swell up with pride a little bit. I may need to confess that. Uh, but this is their story. Uh, in 1522, uh, which is about a year after the Diet of Worms, uh, all the monks in this cloister publicly professed to be followers of Luther and his teachings. <clears throat> and hence, they were imprisoned there uh, by the bishop. All the monks were threatened with being burned at the stake if they did not recant. All of them did except for three. Three by the names of Esh, Voss, and thorn. Additional attempts were made to make these men uh, recant of their beliefs. Esh and Voss refused, and they were burned at the stake on July 1st in 1523. Uh, Thorne, uh, at that point, asked for a couple of days so that he could study the scriptures to know that if what he believed was actually true. Uh, he never did recant. He was spared from burning at the stake, um, but he did die uh, while he was in prison about five years later. In response, Luther penned a hymn. It wasn't the famous, A Mighty Fortress in our, Is Our God. It was a different hymn. He actually mentions them by name in the hymn, which is interesting. But it's also probably why we don't sing it very often in our churches. Um, but Luther saw this persecution 
and the martyrdom of these men as confirmation that what was happening in the Reformation was good and that it was right. Luther believed that it was the greatest honor for their cause that people would be martyred for the truth. And honestly, in in Luther's life, he believed that at some point he would be martyred as well. Luther believed that persecution was a vital part of the life of a Christian. So if persecution is in there, what about all these blessings that Jesus talks about here, this hundredfold even? Uh, This past week, uh, Pastor Nate was checking in on me to make sure everything was good for Sunday. And uh, he caught me while I was driving in the car with some of my children as we were riding back from the tutorial that we were a part of. And uh, I had three of my children in the car with me, and so they were hearing our conversation. And at the end, uh, my six-year-old daughter, Maddie Grace, uh, she pipes up from the back. He said, Daddy, are you and Pastor Nate brothers? (laughs) I said, brothers? Uh, And I realized what she was talking about. I said, yes and no. Uh, He's not my physical brother. Uh, We don't have the same mother, but yes, we are brothers. Um, I said, Pastor Nate and I both believe in Jesus, and God is our Father, so that makes us brothers in Christ. So yes, Daddy and Pastor Nate were brothers. Uh, Surrendering ourselves to Christ grants us the blessings of family all over the world. Uh, When our family was at the beach a couple of weeks ago, Uh, We met fellow believers who lived in Atlanta, in Roswell, Georgia. Uh, They were staying at a condo near us. They had five kids. We've got four with a fifth on the way. Uh, My wife peppered her with questions of what is it like to have a fifth child. Uh, But we enjoyed that fellowship. Our kids played together. Uh, Adults had wonderful fellowship together. Uh, What a blessing it was to meet fellow believers there on the beach and enjoy that time together. Not only that, uh, we have houses And we have lands that uh, Mark mentions here that Jesus tells us about. Uh, Whenever my family travels back to Little Rock, Arkansas, or to Augusta, Georgia, or to Orlando, Florida, we have houses and lands that are available to us without question and without cost. Paul had people all over the Roman Empire who were brothers and sisters, people who were willing to take him in at a moment's notice. We have these blessings. Jesus is telling us here that the life of ease is not the marker of a Christian life that is blessed by God. God may pour out physical blessings on his children, and that is truly a blessing. But Jesus said that we will all receive blessings with persecutions. And this is the territory that the rich young ruler was hesitant to go. This was the territory that we need to spend some time on, reflecting on seriously this morning in our own hearts. So as we conclude this morning, I want to raise a series of questions. I'm going to lay out several questions for us to consider, and I can't answer these questions personally for you. But these are ones that we must wrestle with as believers. You know, the Christian life is one of surrender. Jesus makes it very clear to us this morning. Jesus accomplished salvation by surrender. He gave himself over. He sacrificed himself. And we are called in the same manner to surrender all that we have in faith over to Christ. So the first series of questions revolves around our wealth. And the question is, how do we view our wealth? How do we view it? Is our wealth a blessing from God? 
Do you personally feel entitled or deserving of the things that you have? Is your treasure found in your great possessions or is your treasure found in Christ? Is your wealth one of the greatest hindrances from having an intimate relationship with Christ where he is your treasure? Uh, This is a question that we must wrestle with because of where we live. Um, I was uh, trolling Facebook this past week and someone had posted an article that Forbes magazine had put out this past week. And it listed Williamson County as one of the, I think it was uh, number seven, or somewhere on the list of the, the 10 most wealthiest counties in the United States. We are wealthy. We are very blessed. And we need to wrestle with that. What is our wealth doing to us? Is it a blessing or is it a hindrance to our relationship with God? We need to ask these questions. Uh, The second revolves around persecution. Now, I'm not going to qualify what is persecution and what is not. It's different for each of us. Uh, There was a point in my life where I felt persecution was not being able to find a parking spot at the mall. Uh, That is not persecution. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, When Paul talks about persecution in his letters, he talks about things like, like shipwrecks and physical harm and danger that he experiences. Persecution for the Apostle Paul puts our weaknesses on display so that the power of Christ can be manifest through us. That is persecution, where Christ takes center stage uh, through our weaknesses. So the questions that I, I want to raise with you are this. What is the role of persecution in our lives? Are we suffering persecution or are we not? And if not, why? I think that's a valid question. If not, why? And what does that say about us? And finally, when faced with persecution, what is our reaction to it? In Luke, uh, Luke records in Acts 5, verse 41, that the members of the early church rejoiced. They rejoiced when they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Uh, we don't have to seek out persecution. It's not something that we need to go looking for. Persecution comes to us. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I've seen this in my own life as well. Planting a church opens me up to persecution. Um, There have been times in my life where my relationship with Christ has waned. My desire for him has been stagnant. You've been there, right? And so my prayer to God usually in that time is, God, give me a desire for you and a desire for Christ. I want to know you. Do anything. It's a dangerous prayer to pray. Because invariably in those times in my life, God has opened me up to persecution and to trial and to suffering. But at those moments, everything else gets stripped away and all I have is Christ. And that is the best place to be. So we're in a, in a little while, we're going to be praying for the persecuted church. And I would encourage you as well to pray for those brothers and sisters around the globe, uh, even in our country, who, would, uh, who are under persecution. But as we pray, please don't ask that their persecution would be removed. That's not what we need to be doing. What we need to do is to pray that they would have strength and courage to endure under the blessing of persecution. Pray that their hope would soar on wings like eagles and that their only hope would be in Christ. 
The persecuted church needs our prayer, but there's a final question for us to consider, and that's this. Do we need prayer just as much, maybe even more, than the persecuted church? I often consider that, that it would be a blessing for the persecuted church for them to become like us. But maybe the question is, would it be better if we would become like them? I want to conclude with reading words that we've already read this morning in our New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Um, God calls us into persecution, but it's not something that will last forever, and it is light and momentary. I'm going to start at verse 8. It says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The words of Psalm 23 just echo in my mind. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God, he is there with us. We are always carrying in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Then skipping down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart, brothers and sisters. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven. Lord, I thank you for your word, your word that is truth, uh, that reminds us of the good news and the beauty of the gospel, uh, but that also convicts our heart like a two-edged sword. Uh, Father, I pray that we would heed the words of your scripture this morning, that we would ask and that we would wrestle with these difficult questions of whether or not we are trying to achieve our own salvation uh, that what we are doing with the wealth that you have given to us, and if we have honestly surrendered all that we have over to Christ. Uh, Father, I pray that you would cause us to wrestle with these things. Lord, and I also pray the dangerous prayer that you would open us up, that you would open us up even to persecution and the blessing that it is, so that everything in our lives that we put on the throne of our hearts would be stripped away and that all that we would have is Christ. Lord, I pray that we would desire to know him, know him above all. Father, we pray for those around the world who are suffering persecution right now, not enjoying the freedoms that we deserve, uh, I'm sorry, that we have, uh, the freedoms that we have in Christ. Uh, and these are things actually that we don't deserve, Lord. Um, but they are a gift from you. Father, we pray for those who right now are suffering. We pray that you would give them strength and courage in the midst of their persecutions, that they would be lights for the gospel in dark places, and that you would use them as a blessing, that the gospel would go forth in mighty and in powerful ways. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.